State of Digital Publishing is a startup market research publisher producing a publication and community for digital media publishing professionals, content and media owners in new media and publishing technology. In this episode, we speak with Ben May, CEO of The Code Company, about website migration and redesigns. The Code Company offers WordPress solutions for established digital publishers around the world. Let's begin. Hi guys, we'll just get started. So thanks, thanks everyone for, for joining us. We're going to also go live as well. So yeah, I think everyone knows this topic today. We're going to be talking about website migrations and redesigns. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting topic. I, the reason why I wanted to put this together was just because, you know, since December last year, I've heard a lot of conversations from publishers around relaunching their, you know, websites because of certain brand strategies or the fact that there's new programs that they want to launch. and yeah, I've, I work with Ben on one main one and a few other ones we've spoken about quite a bit. So and Ben done Ben and his team has done this day in, day out. So yeah, before we jump into the agenda, Ben, did you want to just share a bit of background about yourself and how you guys are working with publishers at the moment? Yeah, sure. I mean, we... Um... We are a WordPress development agency, so we're often working with publishers on, you know, rebuilds or migrating from other third-party or content management systems like custom CMSs or Drupal or really old versions of WordPress and migrating over to, to new ones. Sometimes we, you know, there'll be redesigns built into that. Like you said, you know, sometimes a relaunch can come from a, a brand or design perspective. Sometimes... It's a technology one, um, you know, we're, we're a technical implementation agency, basically. So, you know, that that really um, is more often the case that it's a technical reason for us, but we do it day in, day out, as you said. So we've seen plenty of migrations, uh, things go well, things go wrong. Um, and, and you know, the constant evolving nature of this stuff. Yeah, so I think what, let's pretty much go, go to the agenda then. So what's been some of the migration types you've seen? I think, you know, we've mentioned in the headline itself, there's website redesign, but there's other ones, I guess, as well, depending on what the publisher is trying to do. So what have you seen the other migration types being and how, how are they different and the nuance? Yeah, them? I guess the, there's a couple of different types of relaunches. And I guess if we're also talking about this through a SEO perspective as well, that, you know, sometimes a relaunch could be simply updating a template on an existing site, you know, that the website's not moving infrastructure, the actual CMS is exactly the same, the information architecture is not changing. So, you know, that's just simply, you know, we're applying a new template to an existing site, but nothing else is changing. So there's those kind of cosmetic relaunches that that we work on, but then also more often, you know, you, you have different things happening at the same time where, you know, if, if you're going through a redesign, especially on a larger publisher site with a lot of content, it's an opportunity to, to take stock and, and evaluate content and navigation systems, categorizing and taxonomization systems, all these kinds of things. So, you know, sometimes we might have a larger release where URL structures may change, content structures may change. And there's a lot more moving parts at that point, different technology and, and things like that. So that really is a, a, you know, there's a few different degrees of separation in there um, between the types of relaunches and, and the reasons behind that. Cool. I think, like you said, there's platform, there's redesign. I've, I've also, depending on other initiatives as well, there might be even mergers as well. Like there might be 
websites where there might be other separate websites that you want to merge together or there might be even even like the emerging sites as well like if, let's say if you want to go international one of the things that i've also seen happen is creating dedicated country sites because you have resources to be, to be able to do that as well so there's different nuances and approaches to that yeah and then, like i said if as well even like if you want to switch over to different cms's so what have you seen like the common pitfalls in in either one i think planning is obviously the main thing and that's that's pretty obvious but like what's what's been something that publishers have really underestimated when they've gone through and actually planned to do yeah i mean one of the <clears throat> one of the easy ones to to pick on would be the design phase itself and we are a design agency so we we often will you know take people's designs that they're sent to us and this can be a pretty wild range of types of designs we're given you know, we can definitely tell when we're working with a set of designs that have come from a UI designer that knows web, knows content, knows, you know, all the, the nuanced the nuanced challenges with big content sites. Even things as simple as navigation systems are a lot harder to manage when you have 10 categories and then each category has 10 subcategories and managing that system compared to a website that might have 20 pages in total. So working with designs that understand responsive and, and ad tech and grid systems, these are definitely something that some people underestimate. Sometimes it's working with an in-house designer who may be, you know, a digital designer or who works on animation, you know, or anything along those lines. And then, you know, often realizing when it comes to put the rubber to the road that the designs provided actually didn't factor in a whole bunch of different edge cases. One of the, the most common things with design is applying that template, building it out, and then actually once the data and the content is in there, breaking everything. You know, it, it, it's always impressive to look at a design, you know, that might have like a magazine style layout or grid layout of, you know, of content, but every content has the same title or the same amount of characters. So, now that you've got a real data in there and some titles are two words, some titles are 25 words, those kinds of things that when you start looking at it, you realize, wow, this looks terrible. Um, and we didn't think about how we're gonna manage using you know, grid systems or white space, things like that. So design is, is probably the, the, you know, one of the first things that catch people not being uh, expecting some of the nuance and complexities around managing the, the, just the straight design of, of a site like this. And, and the integration challenges that may happen. Yeah, I think taking it one step back, understanding what taxonomy is, and I think this is something that we, when we work together on God Save Points, uh, something that Gilbert, um, maybe when we did the planning about this, because eventually we have to think about some of those new template layouts after when they launch uh, and prioritizing that as well, because that's ultimately what's going to determine what the design layout's going to look like, right? So for example, the topic hub pages or you know, versus a category page versus an article versus, you know, different evergreen post types. That's something that definitely when when we work together on that project, we sort of have to prioritize because that's also going to factor in how long it's going to take for you to work through this process and, and when to go live. Um, and potentially that, you know, with our case, was, as a result, we had to prioritize what's going to be critical cutoff that you have to go live now versus what's going to go later. So what, what do you think about that? And, and basically what's something, why is that one of the reasons maybe that people have missed out on that aspect as well? 
Yeah, I think it's it's easy, you know, when you're going through that design planning phase to think about kind of the, the most high impact pages, you know, and that's obviously going to be what the homepage looks like, what your category or, or taxonomy pages look like or things like that. But then there's all these variations and permutations of those on a, on a bigger site. And, you know, if you're strapped for resources, you may only do like a homepage, an article page and a category page, and, and then that's it. And then there's actually a lot of other parts of the site that sort of, you know, can fall off the radar. So things like, oh, well, the author page or, you know, the those content hub pages and, and sort of giving them the attention they deserve because ultimately they can quite often be a unused resource, especially from a search perspective. You know, if you're not building out these in strategic content hub pages or taxonomy pages or combination taxonomy pages, whatever else. There, there, there's some pretty significant impacts, even, even going back to the author page that with Google's uh, eat, uh, you know, benchmarks now around trust and, and authority and things like that. Author pages are quite a important component that wouldn't probably make the top five if you were to talk to someone just off the top of their head, what they're, what they're prioritizing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's that's definitely a point. Authorship is important. Even even looking at internal linking strategy as well, and and that part of that as a design process is really helpful. And and how to best utilize the website as well, because again, that's something that when we worked on God Save the Points together, it was it was really like we had to constantly refine it and refine it based on like top pages or like looking at how to best make mileage and and promoting the the latest content. So. It's definitely an aspect that you have to factor in as well. Uh, do you think Ben AMP is still, I know the web vitals is not going to make a priority anymore, but when you've worked on, I think yours website's primarily built on the AMP framework. Like, do you think that considering that stack or WordPress, like what's the, what's the decision-making process? Do you have to go through one considering that component on building and designing your website? Yeah, I mean, we've only really built <clears throat> maybe half a dozen uh, websites that are pure AMP, so AMP only. Yeah. And, you know, there's some, there are some advantages in the AMP framework and there are some nice things about working with it. The, the best of both worlds approach we seem to do the most of is, you know, a fully responsive desktop mobile site. We obviously try and keep as optimized as possible and then having, you know, AMP supplementary pages of articles and things like that and that often help with with search results especially in, in you know google news and getting into that first bit of the um the search results especially on mobile as well amp seems to even though you know we've seen google say that it isn't um prioritizing amp articles it it still definitely sits up there the most so amp has an advantage there i mean and the other unrelated benefit to AMP is that it actually offloads a lot of traffic and infrastructure costs. We've, we're working with another client uh, at the moment and they, they're looking at about I don't know, 10 million page views a month. And because a lot of their traffic is heavy mobile, heavy news, I'm, I was surprised how little they're paying for infrastructure costs because they're using you know WordPress Jetpack to run their image CDN. They're using Cloudflare and its workers product, the APO product, which is doing some edge caching. And they're using AMP and AMP is offloading all of that infrastructure to Google's uh, servers. So they're actually getting pretty remarkable traffic and we're spending, you know, about a thousand bucks a month on infrastructure costs. So that was quite impressive. And, and it's one of those things to remember that Google are act acting as a 
another CDN for you and, and running all of that infrastructure. I think that's the next point then. So when we, once you move on to design, then it's about infrastructure, right? So you spoke about the CDN and, and everything else. What, like what's been the common stack that publishers at that size, like you said, have been using? Um, and what's the decision-making process behind that? Yeah, I mean, the, the two main partners we work with the most are WordPress VIP and WP Engine. And, and they're both geared to this managed WordPress managed WordPress provider sort of angle where, you know, you have a sort of rewind five, 10 years, uh, traditional just cPanel web hosting, and you could run anything on there, including WordPress. But these products are geared specifically for WordPress and, and they have built their own proprietary tooling around that. So from deployment to scaling to optimization and caching and all this sort of stuff, we put a lot of sites on, on there and have lots of good things to say about both of them. Because ultimately, you know, we want our client sites to, to be fast. We don't want instability issues and they take care of all of that for us. So that's the perfect situation for us. Until a couple of years ago, we were still building bespoke AWS infrastructure and, and things like that, which certainly has some advantages, but it has that total cost of ownership of over the course of years, you know, having to manage, you know, Linux and PHP updates and, and you know, all those sorts of things. So Working with a managed provider has taken that away from us, but our decision-making process usually looks at things like traffic patterns. Um, and it's not as applicable for us because we don't work in e-commerce where you have you know really big bursts of traffic and some hosts that are more static in terms of their resources don't work well for that kind of traffic where say WP Engine or VIP. So WordPress VIP is a containerized uh, platform. So it scales up as traffic continues, but it funny enough ties back into things like AMP because if you're using something like AMP and having big surges of traffic, you actually don't have to worry too much about infrastructure scaling because a lot of that load is gonna be taken at the edge rather than on the server itself. So, you know, these are the sorts of things that go into that decision-making process and understanding a number of different variables, ultimately. I know we spoke about quite a bit about what using WordPress, but um, I know as well, like particularly a few members of our audience are trialing stuff like using headless WordPress, a CMS or, you know, other stacks. What, what's the consideration? Is it pretty much if you don't have a managed hosting solution, then you should consider those other platforms? What's the when should they consider what CMS they should use and, and how that ties in with the infrastructure? Yeah, I mean, I think any host, you, you want to have infrastructure that's tied or tailored to your technology. I think the age of generalized $10 a month hosting, you can do anything you want with on the way out. And you have something like Laravel Forge that is designed to run Laravel hosting or Vercel, which is designed to run Next.js or WP Engine that's designed to run WordPress. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of these providers because the technology is getting so much more advanced, the infrastructure is keeping up with that and, and generalized hosts don't have that ability to do that. So in terms of CMS evaluation, we obviously work primarily with WordPress and believe it's a very strong contender, especially in the media and publishing space. WordPress's advantages range from the plugin marketplace through to even just the support in the community from different hosting companies to development agencies to SEO experts who are all familiar with WordPress, even, even to just editorial team. Because WordPress powers, you know, 
30 to 40% of the internet, the chances of someone you hired knowing the WordPress backend, or at least having some familiarization is significantly higher than whatever the latest and greatest CMS of the day is um, that no one's ever worked on before or isn't widely supported. So there, there are edge cases where we don't think WordPress is a good solution. And that's sometimes one of the first things we'll do when we, when we talk to people who are sort of contending WordPress with other things is let's, let's work out if WordPress is not the solution because there's no benefit for us to try and sell a migration to WordPress if we know it's going to fail. We've worked with WordPress for so long, we sort of know the types of applications or functionality or traffic where WordPress isn't optimized for running smoothly. What's the, what's the edge cases that you saw that we couldn't work with WordPress CMS as a default or even with using WordPress VIP? Like what, what was the cases that you weren't able to use? Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's not not necessarily where you couldn't. It's where you know you'd have to evaluate: is it worth the energy? I mean, WordPress can ultimately, WordPress is just a bag of PHP scripts. It can do anything. It's you know, is it the right product or the best product to do a particular job? And where WordPress sort of you know struggles a bit at the moment, and probably will for a while, is in highly dynamic, tailored sort of displays. So you know, if you're looking at a B2B, you know, marketing site that is may have some content on it, but you know, individual blocks of content are changing based on a per user traffic. WordPress is not architected to do that right now. You know, there are people in the market like Human Made who have built the Altus platform, which is essentially another WordPress platform, but they've built a whole bunch of personalization and customization layers that tie in directly to their platform. So they're going after to solve that problem that way. I'm also still not the biggest believer in WordPress as a a framework, as a primary e-commerce framework. Um, I think the likes of a Shopify or at at higher end of Magento and things like that uh, are certainly more architected towards that. Again, there are always pros and cons and WordPress could be better for a specific outcome, but those kinds of traffics are a lot harder to manage. I haven't, we haven't really done much work with, with WooCommerce and WordPress for a number of years now, but for the longest time, it's had some pretty serious uh, database structure problems and they're, they're known and being worked on, but ultimately for a lot of people, a, a product like a Shopify where it's a black box and infinite scale is, is ultimately just going to be a better solution than having to download WordPress and download WooCommerce and add half a different plugins and customize and configure it all and manage updates and things like that. So for, for certain scenarios, I think WordPress isn't the right solution. And, and we try to evaluate that with people if it's not going to be for them. I think, I think basically, if, we could sum, if I can summarize for mine, it sounds like mostly ad, outside of ad-driven revenue, any other sort of monetization model like or affiliate, like outside of those models, or subscription potentially where you need to build a new type of infrastructure or something like that. That's where you need to consider whether or not WordPress, you can use the off the shelf WordPress with with plugins. Yeah. It, it's about working. How much, how much do you really want to invest in, in, you know, building, reinventing the wheel or, or is there other products in market? You know, that I think that's incumbent on us as, as WordPress experts to say to people, you know, I don't, don't think WordPress is actually the right tool for this particular job you know i think we had a project a little while ago and and someone had essentially tried to build a custom i think it was a quoting engine like to build for your shipping and distribution and things like that and and the developers who built it had customized it so much it wasn't really wordpress by the end of it 
and, and to the point where I question what WordPress benefit, like what benefit WordPress included would even be, but they just really wanted to solve that problem. And, and because it's an open source framework, they were able to do that. So yeah, I mean, there's always, there's always edge cases and there's always exceptions to the rule, but that's sort of how we think about it. But where we think WordPress works really well is in, in content, in publishing content, personalization and things like that are certainly achievable. And that's where you touched on going down headless uh, architecture where you're using WordPress essentially as a authoring engine. You know, that's like using Google Docs, you're using WordPress to write articles and publish, and then you're running a completely different tech stack at the, at the top level, which is what the actual website is. Um, and it's interacting with WordPress through an API and it's getting the content that way. And we've worked on a number of these projects. Um, you know, to be honest, it's, it's still a very new technology and there's got to be some very specific business requirements for it to offset the investment required because our experience is going down a fully decoupled headless approach using, you know, React or, or whatever else, uh, you know, is five to 10 times multiplier of complexity, which means cost and, and overheads and, and things like that. So it, you can go down all of that, all of that route, spend all of this time and money on a, on a React website that's powered by React on the front end and WordPress on the back end, yeah. and it can still be slow and, and bad performance. It doesn't, doesn't mean that it's going to fix anything if you still are writing, you know, if you're still filling your website up with ads, uh, React isn't going to be able to fix that. So you've still got to be very careful and, and realistic about what you're getting yourself involved with. How long do you think, like, I know this is a very general question I'm asking, but how much more time have you seen planning for developing more of a customized solution or that infrastructure versus just running with the WordPress off the shelf project? Like what's, how much, the reason why I'm asking is to set realistic expectations on launch and particularly for the people that I've registered as well today and some of our people that are attending um, are within SEO, like how much time should they be communicating to the stakeholders around that, that type of planning? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the size and complexity of the site. And it also, the other real, and this is sort of now drifting into like a change management conversation, but, yeah. you know, where we've seen things blow out is when the decision, when when we don't have empowered decision makers, yeah. um, you know, and put it the other way around, when when things have to go designed by committee, essentially, to, to go through planning and launch and things like that. So, you know, in some organizations, and, and there's no rule to it, because sometimes we work in really large organizations that have got a very lean team and very quick to move and don't don't muck about. And then another, other times we work in very small organizations where we expect are going to move very quickly, but it moves at the speed of, you know, a snail. So it, it really comes down to the organization and the culture of, of how things are dealt with internally, um, because... Yeah, I, I think that's one of the big ones is the ability to make decisions because if you're trying to plan a launch, say, and as you're going through the UAT process of a redesign and you realize, oh, hang on, we didn't realize for this particular edge case, this in, in the data migration process, this happens to this page. And, and if we're if you're an outsourced development company like us, we obviously can't, we can make an assessment and say, we don't think that's a big deal. We can fix that later. You don't get a lot of traffic to this page. Let's just do that manually. Or it, it comes back on an internal decision maker. Now, can they just make a decision and say, yep, that makes sense. Let's push on and get done. 
or hang on, we need to go back in a holding pattern and go through a meeting and then another meeting, and then we'll make a decision, then we'll have a meeting to, to confirm the decision. So there's definitely a culture of, of that is one of the hard things to manage. And one of the, the best bits of advice is, you know, to have a project that someone has full power to make decisions and, and be able to sort of own those decisions. Because yeah, if, if everything has to go to a bunch of different people, it has a multiplier effect of, of things slowing down. Yeah, I mean, like, honestly, like for, for me, I've seen anywhere from like a two month turnaround to like even there's another project that I've been involved with that, that they're custom building the website because they have to do like a front end and back end management platform and still like, you know, it can take up to two years, like depending on how, how rigorous you want to be and customize it is. So definitely. Um, yeah. And I mean, one of the things we say when we go into, you know, if people come to us and say, we wanting to do a replatforming, you know, if you look at the truest sense of the word of replatforming, it is not a redesign. It's not a reimagining. It's just a replatforming. We are literally taking what is there now and we're changing how it works in the back end. Uh, and, and that's one of the probably most common things that happens is that a replatforming slowly ends up becoming a redesign at the same time. And a redesign is never just cosmetic. A redesign then turns into, well, what about the content? And then all of a sudden, a replatforming project, which was meant to literally just be changing the back end from, from one system to another, becomes a top to bottom business analysis through to what are the sizes of the ad units? Oh, and we have to go back to market to do that. And then, like you said, a three to six month replatforming project becomes a one to two year top to bottom business review business models have changed, evaluate everything, use to test everything. And they're obviously very hard to manage the budgets for as well, because all of a sudden the, the, the lead time just goes out, the, like goes over the horizon so far. Um, and the problem with, you know, managing an engineering team is that you want to keep the same talent on that project. You don't want to have, you can't just sort of say, oh, remember where we got to put a pin in that. And we'll circle back in three months because first of all, we don't know if those people will be there. They may be on another project, but also losing that momentum and the project turning into a three or a five-year project or just not launching ever at all. So yeah. there's certainly things to be aware of. Absolutely. Yeah. Let, let's keep going through the process, Ben. So like, I think with God Save the Points, we we worked on all those considerations from, from a design and then looked at the different content types. And, you know, then I jumped in and did the content order because, you know, we, yeah, the, all those things were important in terms of relaunching that site because it was, the structure wasn't as optimal. And then after that, I think then we went, we focused on the build and just making sure that everything was sort of compliant. From your end, what were some of the, some of the things that Gilbert mentioned again to you that we had to, what was the cut point in saying, okay, this is the minimum viable we have to go live with. And then what was the, some of the things that we said was negotiable versus non-negotiable to go live? Yeah. And I mean, because we were on, on those sort of projects where, you know, we're making some pretty big changes, you know, one of the things that is always, I hear from SEO people as well is that, you know, when you relaunch a site, oh, actually to, to step back for a second, on, on an average, Google is obviously crawling sites regularly. It's, it's more often than not, you know, looking for new content. And then it's still occasionally checking old content, but 
on a media site, it has a very much a long tail of a burst of traffic and, and activity on an article. And then it basically slowly dies over the course of, you know, however many years, you know, it, it is averaging. So if you make changes, for example, of cross-linking articles, if I go and update some cross-linking articles from 10 years ago, just not and change nothing else, the, the time for Google to go back and find that old article, we could be waiting a year for that to happen. Google may be indexing my content in real time as I'm publishing new articles. They're showing up in, in Google News in five minutes. But the, the chances of it finding something that far back or actually indexing that could take forever, um, which I'm sure you're obviously all, all, all over. So in a redesign, it's like how many things do we want to optimize and, and what wins do we want to take now that we can get the benefit from? So, you know, especially with a older site and replatforming, it's very common the further back you go in the archives of content, the worse it gets. You'll go back and find old YouTube embeds that were the old iframe HTML code that don't load HTTPS or or they're an old flash object, uh, all this kind of garbage, or there's broken links or broken images and things like that. So when you relaunch a site, Google is going to probably do a pretty, it's probably going to do the most thorough crawl of your site it's done in a long time. So that is a really good prism to think through, like what's the negotiables or non-negotiables. And if it's cleaning up that really old content, if that's one of the goals of improving the crawl budget and crawl frequency, things like that, what are we going to get in before we push go on live? Because once Google detects there's been a big change, it's probably going to take a good look at everything. And that's our opportunity to sort of clear house uh, and get rid of some of that garbage. So I know that's not really exactly what you asked, but that's sort of one of the ways we think about it. And on that particular project, there was a lot of old content. And mm-hmm. as much as migrations go, there's rarely a migration that doesn't result at the end with some search and replaces. Um because ultimately that's just the quickest way to, to do that. And we've done migrations where we end up with like three spreadsheets of search and replaces and also having to manage the, the sequence of the search and replaces because we don't want to create new problems and things like that. So it's, it's really about getting as much as we can get in without putting some sort of time boxing on it, I guess, and saying, look, we're pretty much in a sign-off position. But we've got a few days. Let's get through as much as we can in terms of data cleaning, data hygiene. Uh, so when we launch, we know that we're setting ourselves up for the most success possible when Google you know, re-indexes everything. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, that's the exact path that I wanted to lead this conversation. So but for us, I think what's a non-negotiable really is, is setting up the structure because ultimately, you know, like you said, when you typically get that little bit of a bump when you're relaunching the website due to the massive recrawl. Um, that's what we've seen, particularly if it's a positive improvement. It's a clean up. It's a positive thing that you're doing overall and improving the quality. For, for, you know, for me, it was like non-negotiable. We had to get the structure stuff done before we went live. Uh, and then you know, we focused on the main evergreen pieces that were tr- driving the main traffic areas as well. And I think as well, the other thing was wh- whichever thing that we wanted to most get mileage for, for our content, for example, you know, we realized that Google News was one of the avenues that we wanted to really push, making sure that those things were compliant, that those things were set up was the non-negotiables for us. What was negotiable, negotiable was, you know, obviously, like you said, content, we can't go through and clean up everything there. That's when we, you have to take more of a stage approach. And over time, that's when you start to improve that. And, and just generally, like you said, like housekeeping, if you're changing over the URL structures, images, embeds, 
that's a non-negotiable and that, that's something that you have to clean up and improve. Uh, yeah, just some other hacks that I want to give you guys and just so we can then move on to the launch and pre-launch, post-launch stuff. The other thing that helped us really speed up the process was particularly when we're cleaning up tags and as you have a lot of older tags, we did, I think there was a CSV import export plugin and there's there's another one where we literally just exported all the list of, for each of the posts that we had, it mentioned all the list of the tags and we just used a spreadsheet and then rewrote all the tags and then uploaded it that way. And that really saved us time. It was more of an admin job rather than a development job. Um, and I think uh, realizing what yourself as an SEO or, or a publisher can take on versus what developers can take on from that point of view can really help speed up the time. Because if, if, for example, we gave all that to you and your team, Ben, then obviously that will take a lot longer to get the website relaunched done if as opposed to us taking that on and speeding up the process, if that makes sense. So I think knowing that type of hacks and understanding the roles and responsibilities from that point of view is important as well. Did you have any other comments you want to add on that, Ben? No, I think that's always really important to get right as well. And depending on how you're doing the migration, so for, for, for God's sake, the points we're talking about, that was pretty easy that it was an existing WordPress shell. So we didn't have to move the data. We were just sort of transforming it. And I know we're going to talk about that in a second of like, what can you do before launch in the launch and after the launch, but in, in some of our projects where we're migrating from a, a custom CMS or moving from Drupal or Kentico or whatever to WordPress, where we're actually having to move data and transform it and clean it up and do things. So sometimes in those situations, that's where you can basically write some simple cleansing scripts in, in that because we're basically having to pass every single article through a filter anyway. And that's where we can say things like, oh, you know, if, if this, this old tag is used, delete it or change it to that. We also see that when we work on clients that syndicate content from wires or from feeds, being able to build some basic business logic into there to avoid editorial teams having to do the same work over and over again and transformations like that. No, that's perfect. So let's let's jump straight into it, Ben. What what has to be, like you said now, things to plan for pre-launch, going live and post-launch? Yeah, and I, I guess this is one of those ones. So I mean, anytime you look at a, a major site relaunch, and because media sites are so big, if you've got 10,000 articles, and that's a small site, 10,000, let's say 100,000 articles, dozen categories, 20,000 tags, 50 authors, you're looking at probably 250,000 different pages or URLs that exist on the site at least. And that's impossible to eyeball and test that manually. So every major relaunch that we do, we're always thinking about what can we, what can we de-risk or de-scope from the launch itself to basically mitigate risk. So, you know, there's not as many things happening on the actual launch. And sometimes there's nothing you can do about that. And that's just how it is. But sometimes, you know, maybe a relaunch where we're talking to somebody at the moment on a, on a migration and they really do want to move to a new URL structure for a particular part of their site. But it's it's a, a bit of a risk to do that in terms, well, everything's a risk, but it's a risk to do that in terms of the relaunch. And from an any SEO person I've ever met, they always like to be able to track when things happened. And if you do a relaunch with a redesign, a new content structure, new URL structure, all on the same day, it's almost impossible to diagnose if there's any fallout from that. So, you know, one of the things we always think about is like, what can you do now? Can you, on your old system, 
set up the initial redirect and new URL structure. And then that is one less thing that we have to do in the WordPress migration. We can set it up the same way uh, and maintain those, those redirects, but we're kind of breaking things like that down. And likewise, what can we launch with? Let the dust settle for a few weeks. Let Google see what's there. Most sites will see some kind of dip in traffic for a couple of days if there's, if there's wholesale changes just because Google's got to figure out, you know, is the site still who they say they are and is everything still legit? But once that's resumed and and things are stabilized, then go and do the next round of of content changes. And depending on the CMS, sometimes you can't do it on the old CMS. You know, we're working on a project now that the old CMS is a deprecated .NET uh, Windows 2003. uh, so, So changes on that are practically impossible. So we have to take the risk of migrating a lot of that on on launch into WordPress. But then the advantage is that once we're live on WordPress, they'll be able to go and continue to do further changes later on by themselves just in WordPress. So sometimes you don't have the ability to, or the, the cost is just way too prohibitive to do it the old way. But any opportunities to stagger pre, during, or post a launch certainly pays dividends. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes sense. Let's add some of the other final things. And then I want to just pass it over to some of our attendees that are also here as well. So I think that something that I realize that sometimes happens is we speak about what are the negotiable, non-negotiable stuff. And then we say that after post-launch to follow up on it, but sometimes that falls on the wayside. Like what have you seen from a change management point of view, the important thing that we have to do in order to continue on the momentum of that re- redesign or re-platform process? Yeah, I mean, post, post-launch post is always tricky. Sometimes people just want to forget about it for, for a month and pretend it never happened just because it can be, you know, these these are intensive projects. Yeah. Uh, you know, so so sometimes you just want to forget, have a, have a break and, and get your headspace back, especially, you know, the final weeks before a launch can, can be some pretty big days for, for internal and external people. I think on top of that, I mean, one of the most important things is to be super vigilant when it comes to SEO and monitoring the repercussions of of a launch. And, you know, again, I'm not telling you anything new that those first few days or week after a launch, you're practically living in Google Search Console um, and other tools because you're having to watch how, you know, you can set up everything best, you know, test it all, everything's best practice, it's all going to work perfectly. But sometimes there's just one thing missed or one flag didn't get turned off in in a launch. Perfect, really simple example is you may be building a staging site with no index turned on and just for whatever reason, that flag doesn't get turned off in in the launch and then you've launched a new site that's uh, set to no index. Uh, So watching that stuff super carefully, but then longer term maintaining momentum, that's always hard, especially we see people transition different teams and structures and ways of working with a new technology as well. So I guess about trying to have some sort of internal roadmap, if you're fortunate enough to have like sort of a product manager of some capacity or role uh, who has that vision and, and tries to work through that, you know, over the course of a year, that that's a good way to at least see some momentum and, and report that back to the team. Because Often it's the the satisfaction and and that feeling of being live is is great, but then continually feeding back to a team, you know, here's what we accomplished this week or this fortnight or this month. And that keeps people interested and motivated and and engaged in the process. Perfect. Thanks thanks for going through that process, man. I really appreciate it. 
just want to pass it over to to the guys that are, are there and i have a few questions myself that i just want to follow up rapid fire questions so what's what's some of the hacks like course ways you can look at when you're re-platforming or redesigning a new template to be able to rescale some of the images and, and some of those things do you have any suggestions on some tools and some techniques that people can do yeah images images are a tough one especially to get right um things like You've got to be mindful of a lot of different things. Um, for example, Google Discover and, and AMP uh, setting a minimum requirement of 1,200 pixels. You know, then you can also provide different shapes and sizes, different ratios. Ultimately, on really large sites where you've got thousands and thousands of images, the move is to. It's ultimately going to be better to move to a product that sits between your server and the website, and that can do dynamic image sizing out of the box and the default way WordPress deals with images, you define, you know, image sizes and WordPress will create, if you upload an image that's 5,000 pixels, WordPress will create 10 variations of that depending on what you've set up. Mm. But that is not a sustainable, especially as new image sizes are coming out. If Facebook tells us next week that you've got to present a, a three by one ratio, minimum 400 pixel image, you've got two options either if you do it the old way, you'd have to go back and regenerate a million images, um, which can take days and storage costs, or you could use a tool like a Imagex, Cloudinary, Image Kit, any of these kinds of things. WordPress's Jetpack has a Photon product, um, which is not as advanced as some of those, but is free and, and does all the CDN and, and dynamic image sizing as well. Um, another question that I have is a lot of times you take an opportunity to improve the site speed as well and, you know, better optimize the code. But, you know, even when you're running things through PageSpeed tool, there's still the mobile version or when you're looking at it from a mobile site, even though you make it responsive, PageSpeed tool still says that it's, it's um, either, you know, using additional code or it's still, the image sizes are much larger, even though you've made it responsive and try to, to cater to all this scaling stuff that we spoke about now, Ben. What's your tips around trying to manage that, particularly as the, uh, web vital updates coming up yeah i think the way people the front-end developers are thinking about this the most is if your site is a mobile first site thinking about that from a template architecture perspective um basically one device is going to have to do potentially more lifting if you're doing sort of more basic responsive design meaning you know you load the mobile size image but then you can upscale that rather than the other way around of, of loading a desktop's high-res image and especially if you're doing retina images and things like that the the other way is more advanced image tags uh, in html5 and uh, are becoming more standard across all the browsers meaning you can let the browser pick which image it's going to pull down and things like that one of the most frustrating penalties i see people get nipped with on on page speed is image sizing which uh, is is a pretty easy one compared to uh, fixing things like JavaScript and and you know application functionality is a lot more work to to optimize. But fixing images is pretty trivial uh, bit of work. And and ultimately, once you've got it set up at a template level, you'll see benefits throughout the whole site. Yeah, even CLS is one of the main ones that I've seen, and that typically comes from like either the heading or the or the image and stuff. So like yeah. Um... I guess I guess you have to look at a building. I think the, like you said, like there's still conception misconception of building building on a desktop and then it naturally be mobile responsive. But you have to think about it the other way around. So now 100% agree with you on that. What's just I, th I have two more questions and then I think we we'll, we can call it time as well. Unless anyone else has any questions, um, 
what are some of the smarter ways you can do the redirections? Because obviously, like if you're doing a URL restructure, particularly for website migration, it is generally harder to, it's a time extensive process, particularly if an SEO does it, like what have you seen the smarter, efficient ways of doing the redirect mapping? Yeah, I mean, that's one of those ones where ultimately, if you can do it at a programmatic level, it's going to save a lot of time. So, you know, using regex essentially to write patterns of before and after. WordPress is pretty good at even picking, if you have a minor URL structure change, WordPress, I think that would make sense to, to look at how you can do that programmatically. Even using like tools like Cloudflare and things like that will allow you to do some top level redirects. One of the things to be mindful of is change redirects. Uh, you know, you don't want a redirect to redirect to another redirect. So you have multiple uh, sequential redirects happening if you can avoid it, which, which just again goes back to planning and sometimes making sure you've got your prioritization of which redirect takes priority first to, to avoid that situation. Yeah, I think as well, what I've also noticed from my end, like um, I think you have to be very clear on where you're going to be first implementing the redirection as well with WP Engine. Obviously, you should probably do it at the server level in, in order to avoid like slowing down the site. And generally as well, like if you can use regex rules, like for particular folder structure, if you're changing just on the folder level, particular articles and just using that rather than setting up individual rules for, from my standpoint, I think it really helps to with the server load and if people were visiting those pages before i think it really helps and you know just being very honest and just like if, if you really don't need the redirect just for ten at been a move on from those urls and just make sure that your more important pages come up exactly some of the things um yeah just one more question ben and yeah i think we'll just leave it at that for now particularly with page speed as well something that me and you have been speaking about as well this week and i've been testing out there's a lot more like Cloudflare and those type of sites where they're tackling page speed optimization from a CDN level. And that, from what I've seen, like I think CDN, Cloudflare has its page optimization solution. I've been testing out NitroPack and uh, to some aspect, unless, yeah, it's, it's been working pretty well, but it requires yeah, that those type of solutions pretty much um, rewrite your code. It, what, do you th- what are your thoughts around those things? And, and do you think that's something that we should also consider from the beginning when you're building a website or is that, is that a lazy approach? Yeah, I think you want to always go out building the best in, in it as possible to begin with. But you're right, tools like Nitro Pack do make things a lot easier, especially when they are able to optimize a lot of stuff on the fly. You know, the challenges with any of these products is to make sure that we understand what it's doing. Like if if you've got a bit of custom functionality that you're not losing out on that, that, that these plugins aren't rewriting it on the fly, you know, uh, Cloudflare has its JavaScript tool that it rewrites. And, you know, we've had countless problems with that in the past because it basically interprets all the JavaScript and then spits it out in one big uh, lump, um, which if your code isn't set up for that kind of interpretation, it will just break and it won't work at all. So I am pretty excited by those sorts of tools like Nitro Pack I've been playing with as well. And, you know, it, it definitely makes a substantial move. The the struggle is for a a media site that has, you know, like we're saying, half a million different URLs, that's going to be quite a different product compared to a site with 100 URLs in total. So, I mean, even, even our own corporate website, I was running it on and I think it it was able to find about 250 different variations at like different URLs. And we have very little content on our site. So how that scales to a site with half a million URLs is a bit different, but 
yeah, I think there's some some real opportunity coming out in those sort of products. Uh, how to how to manage all of that? Awesome. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Ben, today, and, and for everyone else that's joined us. We'll send out this recording. I'm going to be sending us some supporting material and the case study as well that we've gone through. And I'll also just make sure that whoever's joined that Ben can also be reachable if there's any questions. So with that, let's conclude for today. And, and thank you for everyone for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. See ya. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.